Well, good morning again, Chapel Hill. Um, you came to worship today. I can feel it in the room. Um, it is such a gift for me as a worship pastor here to just be able to stand in that front pew and sing with you. And uh, I was reminded once again why, why God made me a worship pastor, and it's because I will lose it completely if I'm out in the pews with you, just overcome with emotion uh, singing these songs of worship. We just serve a good and gracious God. Amen. He is good to us. And so I'm coming here today as a recovering, self-righteous sinner in need of salvation here to bring you the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, Everything that we're going to dig into today, um, I want God to apply to my heart too. And so um, actually before we read God's word, I want to pray again. Would you pray with me? Lord, we need to hear your word today. We need to hear your word today, not my words your word. And so would you strip away all the distractions and would you bring us face to face with you, Lord Jesus? Would you help us to realize how in need of you we are as our Savior? And then as we come to terms with the depth of our sins, would you show us the height of your forgiveness, Lord God, in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are in the gospel of what? Luke. Luke. All right, Luke chapter 7, if you would please turn there in your copy of God's Word. I want to hear the hustling and bustling of pages turning, so please open your your Bibles in front of you. There's pew Bibles if you need one, Um, or if I just want to hear the sound of, you know, you taking your phone out of your pocket and uh, going through. You're going to want to see this passage as a whole uh, because we're going to go and kind of break it apart and look at it more closely. And I just invite you to, in the words of Pastor Mark, buckle your seatbelts. We're going to get past all the fluff, and we're just going to get right into the truth today, all right? Uh, So we're going to dig deep into what God has to say to us. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36, this just phenomenal account of this Pharisee and something that happens that's pretty unbelievable. The title of our message today is The Gospel for the Self-Righteous. Ooh, maybe I shouldn't have come to church today. Ooh, Gospel for the self-righteous. All right, verse 36. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a what? Sinner. That's important. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, she was weeping. She was crying. And she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said what? To himself. That's important too. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say on, teacher. Jesus tells this story. A certain moneylender, he he had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, that's about 500 days of work worth of wages, and the other 50. When they couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? 
Simon answered, well, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has set my, or wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We believe that this is the word of the Lord, and so we say, thanks be to God. Without wasting any time, here is the big idea of our passage today, and thus the big idea of our message this morning. Here it is. Jesus transforms us from being self-righteous to being sinners saved by grace. Can we say that together? Here we go. One, two, three. Jesus transforms us from being self-righteous to being sinners saved by grace. This passage confronts us with the truth that if we want to love God with all that we are, we're, not going, to ha- we're going to have to approach God differently than the Pharisee and exactly like the woman. And so we're presented with two contrasting portraits and then one final portrait that responds to those two people. And so we're going to take these characters, if you will, the people in this account, one at a time and learn from them, all right? So first, the Pharisee. The Pharisee. And he is the portrait of the self-righteous. He is the self-righteous one. The scene is set for us in the very first verse of our text. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. So the text tells us that this is a Pharisee. And we know that the Pharisee class, they were really well known as the religious leaders of the day. Uh, They were pretty uh, snobby people, and they wanted everybody to see that they had it put together on the outside. And we need to know that this religious man, this Pharisee, when he was inviting people over to his home, this wasn't a small get-together. This wasn't like his immediate family and a few friends, and then he says, hey, Jesus, why don't you come too? No, this was a big deal. This is a a big-name Pharisee who would invite other religious leaders, other thinkers, other just political leaders in the area to come to his home for a gathering. These are what we would call the movers and shakers, the who's who of society that were going to show up at Simon's. And so Jesus invites him, excuse me, the Pharisee invites Jesus to come, come and be a part of that. And so what we see right from the beginning is that this Pharisee, he's well put together on the outside. But on the inside, there's a world of sin going on. This is the very definition, by the way, of self-righteousness. On the inside, there is what we could call this shocking inner dialogue that we get a look into. Luke has this theme throughout his gospel of the inner dialogue. In the Greek, he calls it the dialogismoi. So you can pull that out at your next dinner party. Dialogismoi. I'm very smart. I know Greek. Um, That's the word. Dialogismoi inner dialogue, inner thoughts. And what Luke tells us back in chapter 2, which is a prophecy about Jesus right after he had been born, is that Jesus was going to be in the business of bringing that inner dialogue out into the open. 
So the things that people have kept secret for so long, and as you're coming in uh, to worship today, Jesus knows your innermost thoughts. He knows your deepest, darkest secrets, and he calls them out into the light. That's the business of the ministry of Christ. And so that's exactly what happens. We're going to jump down to verse 39 because we'll get to the woman's part in a moment. But for now, the Pharisee, verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this spectacle of everything going on with the woman, he said, what again? To himself. He said to himself, this is inner dialogue. Nobody else can hear this. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And then catch this. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. So what happens? Jesus read his mind. Jesus is the only prophet. This is the irony, by the way. Well, if this guy were a prophet, okay, let me read your mind, and then you tell me if I'm a prophet. I know what's going on inside of you, deep down in in the recesses of your heart. I, I know what's going on. And he brings his thoughts right out into the open. Simon, I got something to say to you. I would not want to be on the receiving end of a line like that from Jesus. I'm telling you right now. Gunner, I've got something to say to you. Right? Simon's inner dialogue is exposed, and it's what reveals his self-righteous heart. Self-righteousness dwells in the heart. And this is often the case of those of us who are self-righteous. And I put myself in that category. Those of us who struggle with self-righteousness, we may look like we have it all put together on the outside, but on the inside, there's other things going on. Like Simon, our self-righteous disposition, it it leads us to view Jesus in the wrong way, to respond to Jesus in such a way that is, is hindered. And so this is the frightening truth of the Pharisee that we're presented with, that it is possible to have invited Jesus into your very home, but never have invited him into your heart. And there's a major difference. His disposition is clearly one of disbelief. He starts off, if Jesus were a prophet, subjunctive tense, if Jesus were a prophet. You see, Simon was willing to have Jesus around. Oh yeah. Jesus was even willing to be seen, or excuse me, the Pharisee was even willing to be seen with Jesus for the purpose of his own personal gain. Of course. He's even willing to add Jesus to his VIP guest list to the party of the year. But he is not willing to call Christ prophet. He is not willing to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He'd rather rely on his own righteousness than the righteousness of Jesus. He'd rather cover up his sins than experience the forgiveness of Jesus. So self-righteousness, it hinders our response to Christ, but it also impacts our view of others. And this is where it gets darker. If Jesus were a prophet, he says to himself, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is, that she is a sinner. She's not somebody worthy of your attention, Jesus. In fact, she's probably worthy of your disdain. Stay away, Jesus. PR problem, Jesus. Don't let her touch you, Jesus. If you knew who she was, Jesus... Self-righteousness cultivates a comparative spirit instead of a compassionate spirit, a heart of hatred instead of a heart of love. I know this intimately because this is my story on paper before I came to know Jesus Christ. Self-righteous, all together on the outside, very different world going on on the inside. 
But what that caused me to do, even from a young age and kind of going into my high school years, I, I was participating in the church. I was leading worship. I was leading Bible studies. I was on our student leadership when it came to our youth group. I was a part of all of those things from a young age, and yet heart wasn't changed. Heart was not changed. I remember one uh, particular instance where this really came to life in an ugly way, and it was when I was a high school student. I was leading worship for our youth services week after week. We had a great band, a great team, and it was a great learning experience for me. There was one girl on this team that actually had a phenomenal voice, really strong voice, even a sweeter heart. Uh, She was just a great person all around. But there was this one practice where she was particularly struggling with one song, and it wasn't coming out the way that she wanted it to, and you could tell. And I looked down on this young woman. I thought that I was better than her, and in my anger and in my pride, I said to her in front of the whole band, I said, you know when you sing that part, it sounds terrible. You sound like a screechy little girl. It was an awful moment. Awful moment. But it came out so naturally. That's what's interesting about self-righteousness. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can only contain it so long, and therein lies the irony of self-righteousness. This was how I was, because in my heart of hearts, I was better, she was worse. I was more religious, more talented, more whatever than everybody else, including her, so she was just going to have to hear about it. That's the self-righteous spirit. It is incredibly destructive, and it is straight from the pit of hell. And yet it is probably the most prevalent sin in the church today. Always has been, always will be, because look in whom the spirit of self-righteousness lives, the religious man. So those of us who are seated in a church right now, take heed lest ye fall. We have a a self-righteous bent within us, but it's only when we abandon that self-deceiving sin of self-righteousness that we actually come to view the utter sinfulness of our own sin and find in Jesus a Savior. And that's when life transformation happens. 1 John uh, chapter 1 verses 8 through 9 say it this way, if we have, if we say we have no sin, we what? Deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. Amen. Sinners saved by grace. That's the only way we can approach God. And the sad part is that this Pharisee, he himself was a wretched sinner. He just could not see it for the life of him or he wasn't willing to see it. And that's the contrast between him and this woman that we meet because she couldn't unsee it. She couldn't unsee her sin. If the Pharisee is a portrait of self-righteousness, the woman is a portrait of a sinner saved by grace. That's our second portrait that we meet. Sinner saved by grace. So let's zoom back a little bit into verse 37. And behold, Luke says, look, adieu in the Greek, look, a woman of the city who was a sinner, When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, crying. 
She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed repeatedly his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, does that sound weird to you? If it doesn't sound weird to you, you've been in the church a long time because it's weird. It's definitely weird as 21st century Westerners to come and look on this text. And so I was left with a few questions, maybe you too. Like, how did she get into the party? Who, in, who invited this gal? I mean, seriously, who invited this person? Well, like I mentioned a moment ago, these sorts of dinners, they were a big spectacle, a big event, inviting the who's who, the movers and shakers of society, right? And in this time period, if you wanted to hear these people, you'd have to find where they are and go. And so there was oftentimes kind of a standing open invitation to parties like this for the rest of the community to come and stand around the table and listen in on what they said. There were no podcasts. There was no TV. There were no conferences. If you wanted to get the info on what the big-name people were saying about the issues of the day, you had to show up at somebody like Simon's house. And so that's exactly what the woman would do. So that's how she got there. But then how does she get access to the feet? Where's the, where do the feet come in in this picture? Um, the key is in how these folks were placed at the table. Our text says that they reclined, reclined at table. This wasn't like a lazy boy situation. Okay, this was, it looked like this up on the screen. They were leaned usually on their left hand, uh, side, and then they would eat with their right hand. And so they were kind of all leaning, reclining, just this cozy kind of table experience that was going on in the Greco-Roman world. And so uh, because many Jews were Hellenized by this time, they adopted those practices of the Greco-Roman world. And that's why Jesus' feet were so readily accessible. You take the sandals off, you lay down, (laughs) and you have a dinner time, and your feet are all outside, thank goodness, from the rest of the, the table. So you didn't get the, you know, smell of toe jam while you were finishing your unleavened bread. I don't know. Those are important historical aspects, but there's one grammatical aspect that if we miss it, I think we miss the entire motive of why this gal even came, okay? Um, We can tell based on the text that this dinner was not the first time that this woman encountered Christ. She had to have encountered him earlier on. There's There's several clues, but just one of them, if you want to look at verse 48, verse 48, when Jesus speaks to the woman, and in our Bibles, the ESV, it says, your sins are forgiven, right there. A better way to translate that Greek is your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. It's the perfect tense. That means uh, it's something that has been completed in the past with lasting effects into the future. It's like saying your sins have been forgiven and they stand forgiven. Jesus is saying, speak, you got to hear this word today. If you need, if you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so shameful. I'm so sinful. How could God ever receive me? Hear the word of Jesus. Your sins have been dealt with at the cross. Your sins have been dealt with, and your sins stand dealt with. And so this woman, her response, it's not like she showed up because she said, if I just do enough to show Jesus my love, then he's going to forgive me. Oh, no, no. She shows up saying, I'm forgiven, and I got to say thank you. She shows up to show her appreciation. She knew what she had been forgiven for. She knew the life that she came from. Our text tells us two things about her, two terms. Woman of the city— which sounds like what it sounds like. She's a woman of the city. Most commentators would say she's a prostitute. And she's called a sinner, which is kind of how the religious class would class the people beneath them. It's similar to, say, a loser or lowlife. 
And so if we put all those things together, we can imagine that this woman was viewed and felt in her soul that she was a loser, low-life prostitute who didn't deserve a thing from God. That's the status that she had to walk around town with. Everybody knew it, and she sure as heck knew it. And that's the shame that she had carried. But not anymore. Not anymore. She had received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, her Lord and Savior, and it changed her life forever. And so she had to go see Jesus. She finds out, oh, he's at Simon's place? I'm going over there. I'm going to grab my ointment with me. It's super expensive, but Jesus deserves it. And she runs into the place, and she stands in the back, and she's standing around all these other people who probably noticed that she was there, but she was only focused on one guy, the God-man, Jesus Christ the one who had saved her from her sins and given her a brand new identity. And she looks at him. And as she looks at him, she's overcome with emotion because she thinks back at her life of sin and she says, I could have never been saved from this. This is what I've been carrying around, but I don't have to carry it around anymore. And her heart just soars with gratitude. She can't hold it back any longer. And her eyes burst forth with what Martin Luther calls heart water. Her heart just... It explodes with grateful, thankful, joyful, loving, appreciative tears. And she springs into action. She does the only thing that she can think of, which is actually the unthinkable. She lets her hair down. (gasps) How could she do that? We're so used to living in our society where, you know, women have rights. Um... And they're allowed to do what they want with their hair. Nope, 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 nope. Not in the time of Christ. Why would she let her hair down? Shameful, awful, terrible. And then she reaches down and touches his feet. God forbid she touch him. Woman touching a man who's not her husband? Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh, that's naughty. But that's exactly what she does. And then she breaks open the costly perfume, something that would have been viewed as totally wasteful, to clean the feet of her Lord. And in all of this, she is doing what the the Pharisee didn't. She is showing Jesus the most extravagant hospitality imaginable in a place that's not her house because she's grateful. Friends, this should be the experience of every true believer in Jesus Christ. This woman is the portrait of genuine saving faith. It's only when we acknowledge that my sins, which are many, have been forgiven in Jesus Christ, that then we therefore love much. That's the progression. Acceptance to affection to action. The portrait of a sinner saved by grace who would never be the same, and it's all because of Jesus. And that's the final person we meet in our account today. Jesus Christ is the Savior. The self-righteous Pharisee, the sinner saved by grace, the woman, the Savior, Jesus, the Savior we all desperately need. And what Jesus does in kind of one, uh, one move, it's really impressive, masterfully, he says to the self-righteous, you are sinful, actually, and let me show you just how great your sins are. And then he speaks to over the sinner, forgiveness and freedom. Jesus' response to the self-righteous is clear. He's essentially saying, what if I showed you how little you love God, Simon? 
What if I brought you face to face with that? What if I showed you that because you think you have so little to be forgiven and you have no need for a Savior, that that actually leaves you in, the, in a worse place than the worst of sinners? Far from God and a loveless existence. That's what he shows him in his mini parable about the money lender. There's a money lender. He's got a lot of money. They've got two guys that are in debt. They don't have a lot of money. In fact, they owe him. Who is the one that is represented by the person who owes less? The Pharisee. He's the one who, when his debt is forgiven, he goes, that's eh, 50 days' work, you know. I could, I could make that back. I could figure it out. The person with the 500, no, that's going to take a while. And so the one who loves much is because he has been forgiven much But the Pharisee thinks he couldn't possibly owe God much because look at how religious he is. Oh no, says Jesus. Oh no. The very fact that you think yourself righteous and you don't see your sin is actually what's keeping you from seeing the whole point. And the whole point is loving God and you have such little love to give. The Pharisee thinks that he's greater than this sinful woman, and Jesus shows him real quickly in verse 44 that he is losing at his own comparison game. Do you see this woman, he says? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Do you see the the comparison here, the contrast? You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. If you're concerned about winners and losers, Simon, you lost. You lost. You showed me no hospitality, not even the bare minimum. But the woman, the woman, she poured out the most extravagant hospitality a person could. Why? Because she had the love that he didn't. How? Because she had been forgiven. How does he respond to the woman, Jesus Three short, life-saving phrases. Your sins have been forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's the good news for the sinner. Jesus proclaims it over our lives, and we can hear it again and again. In fact, friends, it's only, it's only when we move from the self-righteous zone and shift over to our sin and realize, oh my goodness, I am, I am so far off Mark I have so much that I owe God. I have done so much evil in my life. There's no way I could pay for it. In fact, I'm still doing evil day after day after day. My heart isn't right. Why do I talk to people like that? Why did I respond in that situation like that? Why do I always think that I'm better than everybody else? Why, 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 why? Help me, Jesus. That's the progression. And we have to do that over and over and over again. Come back humbly to the foot of the cross of Calvary and say, I'm a sinner. I need you, Jesus. And then hear him proclaim the words over our lives. Your sins have been forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And then we take that with us and we run straight for Jesus and we say, can I just give you the most extravagant worship possible? Because you deserve it. I don't. Not to us be the glory. Unto you, Jesus, for all that you have done. We have to do that, though, again and again and again, no matter how far we've come in our Christian journey. In fact, the holier you become, the more you need to do that. This is the paradox. William Barclay, one of my favorite Bible commentators, puts it this way. The better a man is, 
the more he feels his sin. The better a man is, the more he feels his sin. I read this story years ago, and it kind of stuck with me, and it took me a while to find the book that it was in. And once I found it, I'm like, this is gold. This, this really impacted my view of how I could grow in the Christian life. Um, so I want to share this story with you. There was a minister, and he was going to this pastor's conference. This was, again, years ago, uh, decades ago, that this happened. This minister was going to this pastor's conference, and part of the pastor's conference, they had this service of worship, And in the service of worship, they said, we're going to give you pastors a moment just to be alone with the Lord and spend some time in prayer. And so they all bowed their heads and they were spending time in prayer. Well, this minister couldn't help but hear somebody, maybe a couple rows back from him, and he could kind of, uh, he thought that the voice sounded familiar. He just couldn't put his finger on it. So he listened a little bit more closely against his better judgment. And he heard this man crying and praying these words. Please, Father, forgive me of my sins. I'm nothing. Forgive me of my failure and help me become the man of God that you want me to be. Now, the minister, he honestly, he couldn't wait to stand up and just catch a peek and try to figure out who this was. Because he said, that voice, I just can't place it. But wow, what a heartfelt uh, just admittance of guilt and a need for a Savior. He was so overcome with this man's uh, heartfelt confession. The service wrapped up. With the prayer time ending, the minister stood up, and he turned around and looked back and just caught a glimpse of who it was, and he was able to immediately place it. The man who was confessing his sins so intensely, pouring his heart out so emotionally, who thought himself so unworthy of anything that God could ever do for him, that man was the great Billy Graham. The better a man is, the more he feels his sin. The way up is down. The way to glory is through the crucifixion. The way to holiness is through humility. Over and over and over, rehearsing the rhythms of God's grace in the gospel. This is the kind of life that we're after, friends, the kind of life that can say with the Apostle Paul without an ounce of dishonesty, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them all. If the worst sinner that you know isn't you, you don't know yourself very well. Somebody said that once, and it really stuck with me. The worst sinner you know isn't yourself. You don't know yourself very well. But that sort of life, it comes from hearing the convicting voice of Christ saying, I got something to say to you, Simon. Bringing us face to face with the reality of our self-righteous sin calling out the realities of our inner dialogue and showing us how great our debt is and how little our love is. It's only when we come then face to face with the Savior as sinners in need of salvation that we can receive the assurance of his pardon. Your sins have been forgiven you. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The greatest way, I think, in our faith to come uh, and experience the gospel in a fresh way is through communion. And so we're going to take communion, but I, I want to offer, maybe this was the first time that you're coming to, to terms with your own self-righteousness, and you're realizing, oh my gosh, I am a real self-righteous person, and I've been trying to build my life on my own ability. 
trying to pull myself up by my own spiritual bootstraps, and I have not been resting in what Christ has done for me. If that's you, this is your moment to say, Jesus, I'm sorry. You see what's going on in here. Bring it out of the light. Forgive me. Show me the greatness of your grace in the gospel. And then for those of you who say, my shame is, is too big. I've been carrying around, some of you have been carrying around stuff from decades ago, and it is weighing you down. A decision that you wish you never would have made. A relationship you wish you never would have handled that way. An identity that you're carrying around that you can't let go of. If that is you, Jesus wants to turn it upside down. Turn that identity upside down and speak over your life. You are my beloved child. So take this moment. This is just between you and the Lord. Let's bow our heads and prepare our hearts for communion. Lord, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you fill us? Would you help us to come face to face with our sin and then the salvation that you offer us in Jesus Christ? We come to you as self-righteous sinners in need of your grace. And we take a moment to ask, Lord Jesus, would you help us? Would you pray in your hearts with me? Maybe this is the first time, maybe this is the thousandth time you've prayed something like this, but just say in your heart, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Jesus, I'm self-righteous. Please forgive me. Because of your shed blood on the cross, because of your body broken for me, have mercy on me. Because of your resurrection, live your life through me. I give you all that I am, and I receive your words spoken over my life. Would you repeat after me? I have been forgiven. My faith has saved me. I go in peace. In Jesus' name. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morning, our sins they are many, His mercy is more.
Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood beneath the death we could ever afford. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is.